Good morning, everyone. Pastor's message this morning is taken from the 11th chapter of Matthew, verses 7 through 14, and it's titled, The Greatest Born of Woman. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if he will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Amen. If we pay attention to scripture at Advent season, which we must do, to celebrate it, we will be confronted not only with the birth of our Lord, which is the focus of Advent, of course, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also a key figure in God's redemptive purposes. You know by the title, you know by what the brother Jim just read, that I'm speaking about John the Baptist. In each of the Gospels, the four Gospels in the New Testament, each of them open with some sort of discourse or some sort of announcement of this man named John. And of these, Luke gives the earliest account of his life. In fact, he records his conception and birth. And like our Lord in that narrative, there's an emphasis in the conception and birth narrative of John of the supernatural involvement in God. And this man that would be born, his mother is barren and his father is a priest and they are old, they're elderly. And so there's a sense where there is a continuation as well in, as what we read back in even as early as Genesis with regard to the patriarch Abraham. There is a continuity there of how God sends prophets. He sends important persons to his people to prepare them for salvation. And John comes in that lineage very early in his life, we see, even in his, even in his conception and birth, we see that in John. Indeed, I want to argue this morning that if we overlook the importance of John the Baptist, we overlook what should bring us to worship God. There is a connection with how we understand John the Baptist and how he related to Jesus and how we ourselves relate to Jesus and what that means this Advent season will end in how we worship God. Advent season is a good reason, then, for us to take a closer look at this somewhat obscure man in Scripture, John the Baptist. The importance of John the Baptist can first be seen in his place in Scripture. The earliest account of his life comes actually before Luke. It comes before the conception and birth. 
The scriptural importance of John the Baptist is first understood in the prophecies that announced this man's ministry, this important person's ministry. Isaiah 40, part of the text we read this morning in our responsive reading, verses 3 and 5, says specifically that there's a voice that cries, and here's what is said about this particular cry, this particular person, that in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Isaiah is declaring that there is in the wilderness someone who will prepare the way of the Lord, who will make straight into the desert a highway for our God. And the result is in verse 4 and ongoing, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's a prophecy which all the four Gospels, in each of their record, say that is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Matthew 3.3 3. Mark 1, 2 and 3, Luke 1, 76, and John 1, 23. Each of the gospel authors say that this prophecy concerning this one who would be in the wilderness preparing the way, the highway for our God, the way of the Lord, regards John the Baptist. John 1, 23 says something very important that John even understood this of himself. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And everything that Isaiah says, every hill will be made low, every valley exalted, the crooked way will be made straight. These are all references to bringing a way of salvation, a reconciliation with God and sinner, with, in fact, even more than that, even God and creation. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and we know that is the essence of what Christ came to do, was reveal the glory of God. And that is revealed in the face of Christ Jesus. And yet John is this figure in fulfillment that we see, who was sent, he was called, and he was foretold indeed to prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 3 describes the calling of John the Baptist. In brief, he is to prepare the coming and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the surprise, isn't it? If you were to read Isaiah chapter 40, apart from the coming and, and ministry of Christ, you might think, well, this is, this is some way he's, he's going to lead the the, the, and I think there was a lot of mystery what it would look like that Yahweh would somehow be becoming as a result or following the preparation of this voice, this prophet. And we know that's fulfilled in Christ. The awe of the fulfillment of John's ministry at this point is that the prophecy says specifically that he is to prepare the way for God. And he did in the person of the son, uh, our son Luther this morning. Um, my wife and I, he's, he, he's not in here, I think. Oh, is he? Okay. He won't listen. <laughs> uh, he, he Actually, he hears a lot more than we, we know, but he, he has these wonderful, youthful, 
exhilarating moments where he's just so excited about something and it's just completely random to everybody else. But it, he's got his mind in this place. Well, this morning he's playing around with the Christmas tree and, and he, he says to mom, God is one in three persons, right, mom? And, and mom says, what? You say, she, I think she said, what? He says, God is one essence in three persons, right? Amen. Out of the bowels of babes. And here is one of those texts, and indeed this is one of those texts that makes it clear that Jesus does not merely come in the name of the Lord. He comes with the power of God, the authority of God himself. Of course, he is coming to declare and to do the word works and words of God, and yet this prophet was to prepare the people for Christ, for the Lord. Now that means something very unique and something very important about this prophet. In addition to this, though, the, the prophet John, I mean, the prophet Malachi prophesied this of John, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And now this is very complicated because when John was asked, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And then Jesus is asked, is this Elijah? And Jesus says, well, if you'll receive him, he is. And then Jesus says, this is, he comes in the spirit of Elijah. And so there's all sorts of debate on, is John the fulfillment of this? But I think by what is said next in the words of the prophet, we have to understand that John is at least in part fulfillment of what Malachi says. For he says here, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This is what Malachi says of this forerunner. And Luke says this is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Luke 1, 16 and 17. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, that is before God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John appears at the beginning of each gospel, and that's not surprising when we see his role, his calling. These prophecies are telling that this was God's purpose for this man. Imagine that. One man in the history of humanity, in God's purposes of redemption, which we know uh, are in accordance with his eternal decree, John the Baptist is that one figure who is to prepare the way for the Lord, preaching repentance, as we'll see, in order to do that. And he's especially important in light of Scripture when we see that his placement in Scripture is, in a sense, parallel with Christ's. In the New Testament, how, how important do we consider the birth of Christ? We spent a whole month reflecting on the advent of Christ, the first coming. It's monumental. When we, when we think about advent, we don't mean that yes, merely he's come in the flesh. We, we think about advent, we should be thinking about it in terms of Christ's coming the Son of God being made man and dwelling among, this, among us for the purpose that he came in the world to fulfill. Namely, his passion, his gospel, the saving of his people from their sins. 
We cannot separate the incarnation from the work and ministry of Christ, even the cross. And so when we think about this time, we think about Galatians 4, 6, that this is the fullness of time in God's timetable of redemption. This is when God has deemed appropriate and right to send forth his only son, born of the woman, for the purpose of redeeming us who were under the law and making us sons of God. And so this is not just solitary, we consider his birth, but that's what makes his birth so important, Christ's birth. But that's what makes it so incredible that in Luke chapter 1, if you go and read that, and we're not going to read that at, at all this morning, well, not much this morning. You go and you read that the first person announced, the first birth announced there, is to Elizabeth and Zechariah, their son John would be born. And, and there is this parallel importance we see there in, in Luke chapter 1 between this man who would prepare the way for the Lord and the Lord himself. The chapter ends with Zechariah's praise to God both for the Messiah who would come and his sons preparing the people for the Messiah to receive him. There is a continuity, in other words, in Scripture between John and Christ. And may I suggest to you that means that John is extremely important in his role in redemptive history. Second. John's importance is seen in his calling and mode of ministry. The primary way he fulfilled his calling was through preaching. John was a preacher. He was a voice crying literally in the wilderness. That's where he fulfilled his ministry. John's preaching was to go before Jesus. That it was is profound in that it brings to light the value of Jesus. You see, John is basically described as what we would refer to in history and in these days especially as a herald. A herald would go before a king and he would pronounce before the subjects of the king, he would pronounce the king's coming and he would do so to prepare the hearts of the people to be reverent for the king's coming. The herald, the preacher, the one crying in the wilderness, the calling of John was to be a preacher to prepare the way of the king, you might say. That's what is described of his calling in Scripture. He would go before the king to announce his coming in order that the people would be prepared for the king. You want to be prepared for the king. You know, we're so irreverent in our society towards authority. But if you were irreverent toward the king, you were judged swiftly. And this is the importance of this herald. And you might think when you think of John's ministry, all the gospel writers say that he, in effect, preached repentance. And I would say before the Holy King, that is the right message to preach, wouldn't you? 
Jesus comes into a world of sinners, and you might well presume that God might just as well judge those sinners by what they do with his son. Remember what Jesus says about those stewards that mistreated the son, the master's son? What will come upon them? Well, God in his mercy does not bring that same judgment in in the beginning, but he sends his son into the world as a lamb. But John's message was to prepare the way of the king. And thus the message of John was a preparation. We see in Mark 1, 7, and 8, he preached, this is what he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. You see, he's preparing the people for someone they must reverence, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. May I say, most of the people that gathered to John to hear his preaching reverenced him. He was a sober man. He was a very respected man. In fact, the Pharisees feared him because of how much respect he had. And here he is saying, the one who comes after me, I'm not worthy to untie his, his sandals, his slippers, if you would put it in our vernacular. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will bring to you salvation, not just the signs of it, but salvation itself. That God appointed this to be done by one man, John, is no small attestation to his importance in the role of redemptive history. And his message was not only to prepare the way of the Lord, but it also coincided with Christ's own message. What did Christ preach? Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Jesus, of Judea, sorry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, he was preaching this way. He's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's two very necessary parallels there. John is saying, repent, the gospel or the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is saying, he's preaching the gospel and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see this? That John is preaching the same message, the same spirit of the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is the herald preparing the way for the king. Third, John is seen to be the one who baptizes Jesus. Now, I don't think we often feel the weight of this. In Matthew chapter 3, though, verses 13 through 15, we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus comes particularly to John. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Now, there's all sorts of questions about what was John's baptism for? I believe it was a preparation for the coming kingdom of God. I believe it was most likely foreshadowed in those cleanliness codes of, the, of Leviticus. The leprosy, as it were, foreshadowing the need to be cleansed from sin. If you take notes, go look at Leviticus chapter 14. There was a sense where it was symbolic of the removal from sin, and that was needed as we think about the king's coming, as I've mentioned, the reverence that was owed him. And yet it was also symbolic of the prophetic fulfillment of the Messiah's blessing upon his people through the cleansing from sin. The prophet Zechariah says this in chapter 13, 1 of his prophecy, 
On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And we know that baptism takes upon this sign in the New Testament that when we are by faith trusting in Christ and we are baptized, when we have faith in Christ, it is a picture of us being united to Christ by faith and indeed cleansed from our sins in Christ through his death and through his resurrection. In his death we die and in his resurrection we live. And so this is important, Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. But we also see something very important as regards to Christ's ministry in this baptism. See, Christ identifies with us in it, doesn't he? We identify with him when we are baptized, but first, Christ was baptized, so to identify with us. You see, Jesus was without sin. There was no reason for him to be cleansed symbolically from sin. John, in a, in a sense, is right. Jesus did not need to be baptized. There was nothing in Jesus that we should expect that he would have to go through a rite of cleanliness. But neither should we expect that he would go to the cross. You see, this is what is so emphatic about this scene is that John is, in a sense, demonstrating, he's being used by God to demonstrate the whole purpose for Christ coming into this world. That by means of offering up his life as an atonement for sin, he would cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And John is that one that God and Jesus purposely came to to say, through you, this sign will be established in baptizing me. Fourth, we come finally to what Jesus said about him. This would be enough in itself, wouldn't it? What Brother Jim read, Matthew chapter 11. We're not, I'm not going to go through a full expository sermon on this this morning. Never fear. <laughs> uh, Matthew 11, 11, though. I really want to key in on a few of these verses. Mostly verse 11. We cannot overlook what our Lord says about John. Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now in the context here, John is in prison. And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and, and asks him, are you the one or do we search for another's? And there's a sense where John is maybe often too harshly judged here as lacking faith. Uh, but we do understand the limitations of John. Even as we see his importance, we know that he himself was not the Messiah. We know that he didn't have all knowledge about what Christ would do, and he didn't know the mind of the Lord. He could utter with Paul, who has been his counselor. He didn't understand everything that was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. He knew his calling was to prepare his way, and he was in prison. Anybody go through trial, go through tribulation, and have a crisis of faith? I dared say that every child of God at some point goes through such a trial. 
such a moment. And so we shouldn't judge John too harshly here. But one thing this does show is that John was not privy to the knowledge that was bestowed by the Father upon the Son himself. John's ministry was revolved around one central theme, prepare the people for Christ. He was in no way a competitor to Christ. John testified himself about himself that he, Jesus, must increase while I must decrease. And after answering John's disciples in a way that signified that he was indeed the look-for Messiah, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this is not an analogous language. He's speaking very, in a sense, very literally here. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That is up to John's birth. No one was greater than him in the history of mankind. Up to John's birth is what I believe Jesus means. Now, you start asking yourself, how can, what does he mean by that? How can he say that? I mean, you have Abraham. You go into the New Testament, and John the Baptist is not quoted. He's not referred to, but Abraham is. Moses is. David is. The prophets are. So what is this John being the greatest all about? I start asking myself this question Actually, the last couple weeks, I've been thinking a lot about John the Baptist. But I believe Jesus bases this assessment of John, at least in part of, from what we read in verses 9 and 10, prior to verse 11 here. What then did you go out to see? He's speaking about John, a prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. In a sense, Jesus is saying, I don't think you estimate how important John is. That's what he's asking. What did you go out to see? A prophet, it's almost like, did you just go out to, to, to sort of uh, have some entertainment? Did you just think he's merely a prophet? Almost this seems to be the emphasis of Jesus' language. Just another prophet in the lineage of prophets. But this is 400 years of silence this prophet is now speaking out of. Yes, he was a prophet, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Wow. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who, who will prepare your way before you. Here's what I gather from what Jesus says. Jesus' assessment of the greatness of God has to do with John's proximity to himself in his ministry. You see, Jesus says here, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, more than a prophet. And here's why he's more. Because he prepared the way for me. It's how closely he relates to me in his ministry that John gets the title, the greatest born of women. Now that is profound. 
because here we can see a reason why Jesus would say then he is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David. Not because his ministry had that broad and massive swath in importance, even redemptive historical importance, because he led my way. There's something of essential value when we think about John the Baptist that is so important for us, is that his importance relates to his proximity to Jesus. Everything about his ministry that was foretold and fulfillment summarized in his relationship to Jesus. Even when he was in the womb, I was talking to our kids, he's in the womb doing flips. I I imagine it was flips or something because I've seen my wife pregnant and I've seen what babies do in the womb. And when that baby understood something, I don't know how all that worked, about Mary being with child, that baby was excited and did a whole little hooli thing in the... Yeah. Everything about his life of value was in relationship to Christ. Now hear this. Matthew eleven eleven, the end of the verse. Yet he, or yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John, than he. And here's how we close. Jesus is not comparing John to other servants of God. He's not saying that John doesn't have a place in that eternal heavenly kingdom. He's speaking about an age, a difference in age here, a difference of redemptive history. John was that last prophet, as it were, before the new covenant would be established in the blood of Christ. He's that last prophet of the Old Testament, of that way in which Moses prepared and Elijah came and Elisha and all the history of the prophets came about. He proceeded, as it were, in proximity to Christ more closely than all of them, but he preceded the establishment of the new covenant. And what's the big deal about that? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want us to just see the flavor of how the New Testament speaks about the distinction between the glory of the old and the glory of the new. And here's why I think the apostle, the, actually the gospel writers, make such a big deal, especially Matthew recording Jesus, speaking to his greatness and then saying, but the kingdom, those who are in the kingdom are greater even than he Verse 3, or verse 7, I'm sorry. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory. Now, he is not demeaning the old covenant here. 
That's what he's speaking about. Carved in letters on the stone, the giving of the commandments at Mount Sinai, uh, there is what he's referring to. After he made covenant with his people, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. There was a light there. There was an emanation of the glory of God that was so great that they couldn't look at Moses, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? That is, that covenant that was so glorious was not eternal, is what he's saying. It was never going to suffice. Hebrews tells us it wouldn't suffice, not because there was a failure in it, but in sinners. Sinners were the problem with that covenant. We couldn't keep it. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the old, co- the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once glo- what once had glory had come has come to have no glory at all. That is, that old covenant has no more glory because of the glory that surpasses it. This is a good way to think about it. The glory of the moon, full moon, might be great in the middle of the night, and it is great. We've seen some amazing... If you're out here and you get a full moon in Hawaii, some of you who are a visitor, you're seeing something incredible. But if it's full and you get one of those, the moon's still out while the sun comes up, I don't know what that's called... But pretty soon, the moon is nothing, right? It's just this little outline. And that's what he's speaking to here. The glory of this new surpassing covenant surpasses that of the old so that you don't see the old and that glorious estate anymore. What you see is that giving way to the new. Yes, it's still glorious. Yes, it's still good, but it gives way to the new. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so this is what I think we need to understand when Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist, is that what he's coming to establish is greater than anything, anybody before before him, even the greatest of servants before him, would take part in. If we understand Jesus' highest estimation of John, being a result of John's proximity to Christ, what does this say of those who have a part in what Christ came to accomplish in the establishment of this new covenant? What does it say about those who have a place, indeed, in his kingdom? Now, there are so many questions regarding Who is in the kingdom? When is the kingdom? How is the kingdom? And all of this. Let me submit to you that when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate almost in every hymn the coming of the king. Why do we do that? Because the scriptures say, say for instance, in Daniel chapter 2, and we're not going to read it, that the that the picture of the Messiah is one of a stone that's cut out of the mountain without hands. And that stone comes down and starts trampling on all the kingdoms of the earth until the whole earth is filled with this kingdom. There is an establishment of the kingdom that gradually increases until that kingdom is full and enriched. 
And so we see there a sort of progression. We also see it in Daniel 7.14, that same progression of a kingdom. The question is, has the kingdom come is also sort of prophesied of when we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, that famous prophecy concerning our Lord's birth. What does it say about that son who is given? That the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then at the end of that important prophecy, it says that he shall be the, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So there is a sense where you see there the establishment, but then the, the idea of the increasing of that government. And of that government, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, listen, to establish it and uphold it. With justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I think there's everything in these prophecies to understand that at the coming of the Messiah, the, the Messiah will establish a kingdom. Now, when we answer that question, has the kingdom come, we must say the kingdom is still future in a very real sense. In Scripture, we're called to pray for the kingdom to come, thy will be done. We are taught over and over again in the New Testament to look for the, the coming kingdom. That's what Christ, when he... Uh, teaches those parables about being prepared for his second coming. He puts those in descriptions regarding the kingdom, right? And so there's a sense where the kingdom is still future. But when we see the unfolding, say of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 20, if the finger of God, if it's, in the if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus said. While he was there. And then we see in chapter 17, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You see, they all thought the Messiah is going to set up his kingdom and establish it, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and the kingdom in Jerusalem is going to set up, and he'll gather all his people in, and that's how God will establish his kingdom. But Jesus says, no, it's not going to be established in ways that can be observed. Look here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And really better is the King James that says the kingdom of God is in you. Well, which way is it in you? Well, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that although the future kingdom still, as it is expanding, there is still a future for the kingdom of God. It is very clear from the Apostle that there is an imminent, a near quality to it. In fact, Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. There is a sense that is true of all of us this morning that because of the new covenant, because of what Christ has done in defeating Satan in his own body on the tree, and we know that because he has been raised from the dead, that we are no longer under that dominion anymore. We're no under, longer under the dominion of sin and condemnation. We're no un, longer under the reign, even in the influence of the old covenant. We're free from that bondage, Galatians chapter 3. We are not prisoners in it anymore. We are children and Paul says here that we, here in Colossians 1.13, have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
we are part, we are citizens, if we are in Christ, of the king's kingdom by faith. And here's what I want us to see then this morning. What did Christ come to establish in you? We just read about how important John was. And we saw why he was so important. Because of his proximity to Christ. But if what the scriptures have taught us is true, then your position by faith in Christ, by the Spirit being within you in the new covenant, by being a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, by faith in Christ, means that there is a closer relationship that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe not in your calling, as John had, but in your spirit, in the essence of your faith, in the, in the union that you have with Christ, you are of more importance or greater, I think is the word that we should use, even than that of John the Baptist. Now, I don't want to speak heresy here, but you need to know that this Advent season, you are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the head of all things. He has been put over all things, Hebrews tells us. Hebrews tells us that all things are under his feet. Although we don't see all things under his feet, chapter 1, verse 8 of Hebrews says this, But of the Son, he says, that is, God says, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And if it's forever, it is now. And we are already granted a secure place in that eternal kingdom because of Christ's finished work on the cross. So let's this Advent season draw near to the throne of grace. Let us realize what God sent his son into this world to do to bring you close to him through the giving of his son. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, I'll end this. None of us should leave here and say, wow, I am so all important because of me, me, me. How was John important? Because of how he related to Christ. Look at how Jesus talked about the greatness in the kingdom of heaven. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Don't go out of here and say, Look at me, how great I am. Go out of here like children. Cling to Christ. That's where we find our worth. That's where we find our importance. Our sonship, our eternal inheritance is only in Christ. Let's boast in him this Christmas.